If you're able, please stand for the reading of the gospel. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Luke. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, you do to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies, do good, and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons and daughters of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. The Gospel of the Lord. In the name of our loving, liberating, and life-giving God, Amen. Amen. Please be seated. According to my favorite Jewish theologian, Martin Buber, this world is not comprehensible, but it is embraceable through the embracing of just one. Buber also said, when two people relate to each other authentically and humanely, God is the electricity that surges between them. Martin Buber died in 1965, but his words have never been more timely or true than in 2023. It was between those dates in the winter of 1986 when I was in my early 20s, and I was on my way to Intercontinental in Air Airport in Houston, where I was going to board a KLM flight that would take me to Amsterdam and then on to Tel Aviv. And just before I left for the airport, my mom pleaded with me, please don't go. It's too dangerous over there. Mom, I'll be fine. Don't worry, I'll see you in two months. My reassurances to her were not precisely accurate. I would see her in two months. But on my first study trip to the Holy Land, I would not be so much fine as I would be changed. I'd never see the Holy Land. I'd never see the world. I'd never see even my own life and calling in quite the same way ever again. And that perspective has made all the difference. Now, I remember when my professors at McCormick Seminary in Chicago, uh, by the way, Ken, I think you're over there. That's a Presbyterian seminary. There you are. Yes, it is. Good Presbyterian. <laughs> Some of it took, actually. 
I remember my Presbyterian professors telling me, look, Bill, in Jerusalem there is only one place for you to study. It's the best place. It's St. George's College on the campus of St. George's Anglican Cathedral. Now, we need to warn you, you're going to meet a lot of Episcopalians there. But do not fear because they won't hurt you. They didn't hurt me. But they did embrace and love and challenge and change me, as did most everyone I met in that hallowed land. It's why we keep going back to, to be loved and to be changed and to love and maybe even to change things. Now, the archaeology, the biblical studies, the history, the theology, all of that combined to make a profound difference. But what really made the biggest difference were the people I met, hearing their stories, learning from their experiences, even acknowledging our vast differences. Just a few days into our course, I remember that our dean, John Peterson, said he wanted to take us all on a walk in the Judean hill country away from the city to get a sense of what it was like back then. We were going to go on what he called a nice walk with Jesus through the countryside. And he painted this lovely picture of a pleasant, peaceful stroll and opportunity to walk hand in hand with Jesus and see what Jesus saw and experienced in his time. And indeed, as we began, it was serene. But then our tranquility was quickly shattered by an older man out tending sheep in the hills. And he seemed to be really upset, even irate, and his anger seemed to be directed towards us. We didn't do anything wrong. His face was contorted and red with rage. His eyes welled up with what looked like tears. He was wearing one of those kafias, one of those headscarves. And I, I knew from reading the, the newspaper that people who wore those could be very dangerous. I was scared as the man drew closer to us and cried out with finger pointing. You took my lamp. You took my home. You took everything and you shot my son in the back. Why? Why? You answer to God. So much for peace and tranquility. I remember when we got back to St. George's, I told my teacher, I don't think I want to go on a walk with Jesus anymore. <laughs> that man made me really uncomfortable, Dean Peterson. I... I did not understand what he was talking about, and I was not complicit in whatever loss he may have suffered. And I remember that Dean Peterson looked at me as a wise elder might look at a son. And he said, you know, Bill, sometimes walking with Jesus is not easy. I'm glad the man made you uncomfortable. I am glad that you admit you don't understand because it is only when we are uncomfortable and we acknowledge our own ignorance that we can begin to learn and grow and become wise and understanding and compassionate. As painful as it was for you to hear that man's truth, it is important that you hear it because God hears it. 
So it began. So it continues. And I have to tell you, I don't know what happened to that old man, but I do care because Jesus cares. While I was at St. George's, I met so many wonderful people. Some were local, some were visitors. There was this one young guy from England who was in his gap year, and he had decided to spend his entire year volunteering at a center for children with severe disabilities. It was a ministry of the Episcopal Diocese of Jerusalem. And I remember him telling me in his very soft-spoken and gentle and hardly accusatory voice that he just wanted to help. And the reason he wanted to help was because he believed that when he helped, he was following Jesus. One day I asked him if I could accompany him to the center and learn more about it, and I will never forget watching him taking a young disabled child in his arms and cradle and rock and feed this little boy who could not care for himself. And I remember thinking as I watched that intimate and tender moment, this is what love looks like. This is what life looks like when Jesus is there. I don't know what happened to that young man from England. I don't know what happened to that little disabled boy from the West Bank, but I do care because Jesus cares. It was many decades later, not that long ago, when Sandy and I sat at the bar at the Magdala Pilgrims Hotel in Galilee. It's the hometown of Mary Magdalene and the recently discovered excavation of the first century synagogue where Jesus most assuredly taught is illuminated just outside. The young bartender who seemed elusive if not suspicious at first, told us that his name was Levi. He acted kind of disinterested and aloof until he figured out that we had no agenda other than to learn from him and to tip him well. <laughs> so he began to open up a bit and he began to share some things about his own life and his own challenges. And he told us he was just about to begin his military service with the Israel Defense Forces, and that he was having some doubts and some fears, but he also clearly felt like it was his duty. I just want to get on with my life, he told us. I want to have a career and a family, and I want to live in peace. That's all I want. We look forward to seeing him and visiting with him every night. I remember he started introducing us to his favorite Israeli wines, and we would laugh together when we'd see Father Juan, the Catholic priest from Mexico who had started Magdala. He'd sneak behind the bar every night and pour himself a triple Macallan 12. We weren't sure if this young man was being cynical, skeptical, or just being authentic and real when he warned us at the end of our final evening, now take everything you hear from anyone here with a grain of salt, including me. Grain of salt or sand or truth, all we knew is that we liked him 
and we appreciated him, and we wanted the best for him. Lately, we've been worried about him because we don't know what has happened to him. But we do care because Jesus cares. It is so important to know, to care, to connect with people, to listen to their stories and understand their perspectives and their experience for these relational encounters, according to Martin Buber, are where we meet God. We meet God in the angry man, in the disabled child, in the caring student, in the uncertain soldier. Martin Buber, still considered the greatest Israeli philosopher and theologian, once said he did not like being called either of those because he was not interested in ideas, he was interested in experiences. That he did not want so much to discuss or speculate about God as he wanted to be in relationship with God and in relationship with all those created by God. Martin Buber was born in Vienna to an Orthodox Jewish family, and he was raised by his grandfather in what is now, interestingly, Lviv, Ukraine. And his grandfather was a deeply spiritual man and loved Martin, and he taught him about the great spiritual themes of rabbinic literature, and eventually Martin became an honorary professor at the University of Frankfurt, but he resigned in protest just after Hitler came to power in 1933. In 1938, he moved to Jerusalem and he became a professor at the Hebrew University. He was a Zionist, but his thinking was quite nuanced and continued to evolve and change over time, and he always insisted from the beginning that the spiritual reality was far more important than the political reality. From the very beginning, Buber advocated passionately for a bi-national Jewish-Arab state to develop a place that could be an example for the whole world where all could live in brotherhood and peace. And Buber, the Jewish theologian, said that his vision for such a unique place of coexistence was informed not only by his Jewish heritage and the teachings of the rabbis, but also, he said, by the life and teachings of Jesus. Eventually, his views were cast aside as impractical and idealistic and impossible. And a different, far less peaceful path was pursued. But Buber never stopped believing that dialogue is more important than monologue. And in fact, is the only thing that can save the world. He said that just as speaking about God rather than with God indicates nothing of faith, so speaking about people rather than with, to, and for people is also no evidence of faith. His most famous work, and you may know of it, was called I Thou. It's an oft-quoted treatise in which he says that many of us relate to the world and to others in this world in an I-it way. Because you see, if I can make you an it, you are less than human. I can demean and deny you. 
I can destroy you, in fact, because you are a thing. Buber would say even today that as long as we live in an I-it world, another holocaust, another genocide, another war, another spiral and determinable violence is just around the corner. If Buber's vision of a holy land in which all treat the other as thou rather than it, would things be different today? All I can tell you is that on his 83rd birthday, there was a giant torchlight march by students from the Hebrew University. But this march was very different than many marches today. There was no vitriol. There was no castigating the opposition. There was no one to fear. During this march, there were no threats, there was no violence, no accusations. Instead, hundreds of students, hundreds of students, Arabs and Jews, led by light and by love, marched through the streets of Jerusalem to Martin Buber's home, and there they sang to him in Arabic and in Hebrew, happy birthday, teacher. Their teacher taught them well that regardless of their differences, they are all vows. No one, no one, isn't it? Buber's vision for the Holy Land remains unrealized, just as God's dream for the world remains unfinished. But as you too sang in their great unfinished song, as they call it, a song that allows you and allows me, through our witness, to compose the next verse. You've got to do what you should. One life with each other, sisters, brothers, one life, but we are not the same. We get to carry each other, carry each other. What a privilege to carry each other. It reminds me of the words of a certain Jewish rabbi. The world is not comprehensible, but it is embraceable through embracing just one other. I, thou, you, me, two, Pick up your torch and follow the light. Somebody needs to lead the way. Does it get any better? Or do you feel the same? Will it make it easier on you now? You got someone to blame. You say one love, one life, but it's one need in the night. 
To raise the dead Have you come here to play Jesus To the lepers in your head Did I ask too much More than that You gave me nothing Now it's all I got We're one But we're not the same Well we hurt each other and we'll do it again you say love is a temple love a higher law love is a temple love the higher law you ask me to enter but then you make me crawl well, i can't keep holding on when all you got is hurt one love one love one life you gotta do what you should one life with each other sisters brothers one life but we're not the same we get to carry each other carry each other Oh 